0: Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Well, that final uh, line in Rachel's poem, Love Beginning Its Long Descent, that's exactly where we are today. And if we happen to be reading straight through the story that the Bible tells, by the time we arrive at the Gospels, at the Matthew reading that we find today, we have had quite the tour. We've experienced the birth of the cosmos, a world teeming with so much possibility and stunning beauty and that the whole drama turned cataclysmic almost as quickly as the show began we reveled in the wonder of a lush and abundant garden, magnificent beyond description, only to see it spoiled nearly from the get-go by the human caretakers. We barely nudged past the narrative's first act before one brother, out of sheer envy, murders another. Without needing anyone to spell out the tragic truth for us, we instinctively understand that we are not reading any pixie-dusted fairy tale. This is a gritty story. From those initial movements all the way up to the Old Testament's final pages, none of the story's stark authenticity relents, not for a moment. The entire time, we've been neck deep in this truthful, harrowing, hopeful, desolate narrative recounting how a world drenched with so much goodness, continues to writhe in desperation for God's rescue. So perhaps as we're reading along, we exhale a deep breath when we turn the pages into the New Testament and we run headlong into Matthew, a book that insists that it's proclaiming gospel to us. And this word gospel blazes like neon letters in midnight because gospel means Good news, and if we ever needed good news, it's now. Just in the nick of time. After we've experienced so much disillusionment, so much disintegration, after we've realized over and over again humanity's absolute inability to stop making a mess of things, good news is exactly what we need. Isn't it strange, perhaps, though, that when we turn Matthew, we're supposed to be getting this good news, what we run into right off the bat is a chronology. We didn't read it this morning. The lectionary skips right over it. It's this long chronology, a a liturgy, ticking off ancestor by ancestor of Jesus' lineage, women and men, who most of them had been buried for centuries, And we might think, oh, that is a real snoozer. When we look into that chronology, we find, though, that it doesn't doctor any of the history. If if Matthew is trying to paint just a pretty picture of God coming to us in some really uh, beautiful and unsoiled way, he didn't do a very good job. We have a number of shady characters. We have Jacob, who schemed his way to the top, swindling his brother and his own father. We have David, who abused power and violence to his own advantage. Through money-grubbing, extravagance, and conceit, we have Rehoboam, who wasted most of Israel's fortune. We have Ahaziah, who, like his father Ahab, murdered innocents and exhibited a lust for power. Herbert McCabe puts it pretty much right on target when he says, Jesus belonged to a family of murderers, cheats, cowards, adulterers, liars. He belonged to us. He came to help us. No wonder he came to a bad end and was able through that to give us some hope. The more we read, the deeper we go into Matthew, we discover this gospel begins with the most pedantic, human, unflattering details to make absolutely clear something that we might miss, something we would never have anticipated. The good news that we need most is not as some of us would have expected, perhaps, a religious ideal, a philosophical theory, a moral code, but what we needed was a person. In time... Discover that this good news is Jesus Christ, the one who in his own body brings God near to us. The one who in his own brought body brings love's descent. And Matthew moves from the chronology to the most outrageous and impossible story with the most matter-of-fact short introduction. Now the birth of Jesus Christ the Messiah took place this way. Jesus' mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before they lived together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And so here we have one of the great scandals of this mystery that the church has called the Incarnation. That moment when God became human. When God became a baby. The scandal is the preposterous idea which makes no sense whatsoever to our modern rational minds that Mary had a baby, not because of passions with Joseph, but because of a gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, this is preposterous to us. If our idea of God is a God who is always removed from the reality of our life. But if God is the one who literally breathes our life into existence, if God is the one who holds our life together even now, if the God is the one who holds every tree together and every river together and every creature together, then it actually isn't so ridiculous idea to think that God would do in one person what God does everywhere. It's foolish, actually, to try to finally rationally argue in some kind of airtight way for God. For God's arrival in Jesus. For God's arrival in the church. For God's arrival in us. For God's arrival in our sister or our brother. The two councils that clarified for the church who exactly Jesus was, was the Nicene and the Chalcedon councils, and they clarified for us that Jesus was both fully God and fully human. And over the years, it seems like these councils have gotten a little bit of a bad rap. We kind of started to view them as these stuffy theologians arguing minutiae, looking down some stifling, drab, unimaginative way of understanding God as both human and divine as if they just flattened everything out and handed us some wooden, antiquated language that's entirely out of date. I think, though, that it's actually just the opposite. Those early Christians gathered to bear witness to a profound, explosive, and mysterious fact. Stanley Hauerwas says, Nicaea and Chalcedon do not explain the Trinity and incarnation, but rather they teach us how to speak of the mystery of God without explanation. In the same way, Hauerwas says that Matthew does not assume it is his task to make God's word intelligible to us, but rather his task is to show us how we can live in light of Jesus' conception and birth how to live in light of the fact that love has descended to us. This uh, last week, I started reading um, the story of Stalin's daughter. It's called Stalin's daughter. And there was this one moment in the story that um, was really powerful for me. It was, it was uh, Stalin's mother-in-law. And I have to look at the words. I can never pronounce it right. It's Olga Aliyeleuva. I think I got that right. I listened to it several times. Olga Aliyeleuva. So she, along with most of her family, most of those that she lived around, had abandoned her understanding of God, had abandoned her way of understanding the spiritual world, had bought into the the flat naturalistic vision uh, that the empire handed off to her. But later in her life, she came back to her Eastern Orthodox roots. And she was the only one in the family who did. And most of her family, and particularly the story says her grandchildren, chided her about this, kidded her about this, gave her a really hard time, said that she was foolish, she was part of the old ways. And she would just turn to them and say, oh, where is your soul? And then she would say, ah, but when you feel its ache, you will know. And imagine this woman, probably not very educated, a woman who was immersed in a system that told her to believe in such things was absolutely ludicrous. And yet she had this childhood and this faith, if you're familiar with Eastern Orthodoxy, that would have very much taught her from the very beginning, she would have grown up with the depth of an understanding that God is in the world all around her. In every tree and the ground that she walks on, and in the, in the love that she felt for her family and the things that she enjoyed and the beauties, and that at some point, the aches of her heart and the beauty that she experienced would not allow her to relinquish what her deep hope was. And so she didn't really have a great rational argument, but what she could say is, "I felt the ache." I think she would also say, knowing a little bit of her story, "I have felt the beauty." It is that deep ache that we have to pay attention to. That longing that will not be quenched for love to descend. That longing that we hate so much and resist so much and that turns us cynical often as we try so hard to kill it or make it go away. And we may want to push God into the corner. We may say that God's action in Jesus is ridiculous. The idea is fanciful, wishful thinking, the product of weak minds. And Matthew hears all these objections and all of our sophisticated protests and simply says, well, now the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, happened this way. Hope came this way. Help came this way. But you know, the great scandal of the incarnation, the great scandal that Matthew points to, really, it doesn't seem... Is the fact that Mary, as a virgin, brought a baby who is God into the world. The greater scandal is the fact that God refused to abandon us. The greater scandal is that God, the great lover of the universe, the Almighty of the world, that this God would refuse to abandon us. And so when we hear the scripture claim to us that God in Jesus is Emmanuel, is God with us. It means that God is in the very depths of our own experience. God is in the the greatest places of violence in our world. God is in the deepest places of turmoil of your heart. In your most frightening questions, God is there. In your most uncertain future, God is there. God is with you. God in Jesus is Emmanuel